VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today we are talking goals as Liverpool hit four without Mo Salah and Arsenal score five after two goalless games at the Emirates. We'll also be talking about Ivan Tony's return and, as it's been a few weeks, we'll have to chat VAR again after controversial decisions in Sheffield United's draw with West Ham. And joining me, Tom Clark, to discuss all of that, we have a football writer brimming with glee as her team are five points clear at the top of the Premier League. It's Alison Rudd and a former defender who, when it comes to goals, Managed a season high of two in Chesterfield's 2008-09 season. It's Gregor Robertson. I scored two goals in one season. Apparently so, yeah. (laughs) That's news to me. According to the stats you did, anyway. um, We had hoped that Tom Allnut would be with us as well, but sadly he has been delayed by the trains and the weather drama and he's got to get to Cobham to talk to Mauricio Pochettino later. So you'll have to make do with me. I might have to throw some opinions in (laughs) for once rather than just asking some questions. Or... Or you could just pick on Gregor a bit more because yeah. he opened himself up to that in his piece today about Ivan Tony. He did. And how... <laughs> well, you've written it, Gregor. Oh, uh, uh, what? Go on, sheer, sheer terror in Gregor's face. Well, you're, passing, started to make you're passing back to your goalkeeper. My short back pass, yeah. yeah and you say, yeah. what is it you say to yourself? Not short. Not short. Not short. And what do you do? I played it short. Nice. That's. I think that's really interesting. A, it's very brave of you to admit it, but... B, it does prove that the whole idea of negative reinforcement, if you, which is why that teachers and parents shouldn't tell children off. I mean, you know, don't forget your coat. Don't forget your homework. You're telling yourself off in advance, aren't you? So what you've put in your head is, I'm going to play this short because the word short is lodged in your brain. Yeah. We should say that this was about, uh, this piece was about Ivan Tony being the opposite of this and that he's kind of his conviction about how good he, like he that he belongs in any stage that no everything that's been swirling around recently you know so much scrutiny he was able to block it all out and deliver the business when he's on his return and that he'd visualized doing exactly that which i i, I found fascinating partly because it's so alien to me mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, you know i also point out that there are other players jamie carragher for one Eddie Howe, who've said that their biggest motivation is fear. So, Ivan Tony, to me, has been pretty fascinating in the last couple of weeks because he has had no fear whatsoever, despite everything that's happened to him recently. Well, you've teased some little nuggets from Gregor's piece, Alison, and I'm going to leave the listeners begging for more by bringing it up towards the end of the show, I think. But it is a fascinating piece, so make sure you stick with us. But we're going to start with Bournemouth and their defeat against Liverpool uh, and Henry, Henry Winter's match report starting like this. 
Everyone knows that Manchester City will respond to Liverpool's title challenge because of the champion's quality and character, but what a relentless, fearless challenge it is turning out to be from Jurgen Klopp's side. Liverpool are five points clear, their number nine is firing, their captain is commanding again, and they have youngsters stepping in and stepping up. City know that they have a fight on their hands. Now, Gregor, Bournemouth was potentially seen as a bit of a tough challenge before this game, and in some ways it wasn't really a 4-0 match, was it, in terms of particularly how Bournemouth started the game and some of the chances that they managed to create, but it did have a feel to me of this is what the best teams do, isn't it? This is, it was almost quite a City-like performance in some respects. Yeah, I mean, yeah, there was a really interesting little chart at the bottom of Hamza's piece as well in the paper today that kind of showed the momentum flow and which, you know, clever data-minded people can do these days. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and there was, you know, but Bournemouth had had a lot of the play and that's what they do. They, they you know, they do not sit back. They, they, they throw everything at any team. And so there were, you know, periods in this game that, that Bournemouth were very much in it. But what Liverpool were, were like clinical and it's just another kind of just underlined how many sort of attacking options they have Jota's come back and he's absolutely hit the ground running uh, you know Gakpo coming on uh, Elliot stepping up you know the players who some of the young players as well who are coming in and really making an impact um, and is you know is he referring to Darwin Nunes being the number nine who's firing I mean he scored one goal in 16 games before that I think people yeah but he's firing now isn't he come right on. okay so he don't let that get in the way of a good intro he come fired on. in our game <laughs> we, we all know okay. that well look they, they could do with him firing particularly now Salah's injured and, and you know we, they don't know how long he's going to be away uh, at AFCON but um, I'm remain to be convinced that he's going to do it consistently do you not think he looks a bit sharper than when he looked sharp at the start of the season, he's he's always looked sharp. So we know in we know from our good pal Tony Cascarino that goals once they start coming, they keep coming. And so he scored. You know, I know he's only scored one in whatever it was sixteen, 16. before, but two in this game. That's a good. That's a good start. And head. And you would know talking about confidence as we were before about your career and Ivan Tony's and things. That confidence and being told moved moved into the centre as well by Klopp making changes. That as well is confidence building. Given the central central spot. Then scoring, yeah, it's, it's going to po- take that forward. It's all it? positive, but as I say, at the start of the season, you know, I remember we discussed Paul Joyce writing a piece about how he kind of turned a corner in his Liverpool career, and and uh, you know he's turning all the positive play and all the kind of support. There's so, still so much support for for Nunez at Anfield. They see everything else he does, he was, but he was he was kind of finally turning that into goals, and then. So do you think? It, do you sorry? So just to be clear, you don't think. He's he's got the potential, but he's not yet there. Or you actually think you? you I just th- remain you think to be convinced a, that he that, uh, that he's a will get there. Who's a bit short type he, thing. I remain to be convinced that he will get there. That he will be consistent and score like I don't know thirty goals in a season in the same way as some of the best players do. Alison, as a no, I would agree. I would agree. I don't I don't see enough evidence of that, but I do see a lot of evidence of how he fits into the team and fits the character of the team. I agree. The scoreline is a bit uh, uh, not quite reflective of of the, of the passages of play, but throughout, even even during the first half, Liverpool have what they have, which makes you quite calm from a Liverpool fan perspective in a game like this. Is they have a, a compelling personality, which is and, and Nunes is part of that. So they. F- they fight for every ball. They, they they have relentless energy. I didn't think it was a City-like, Man City-like performance at all, Tom, actually, because I think City are quite grown up and contained. 
whereas Liverpool are the life and soul of the party type of team. You, you know. still think they're a bit mad? I think they're, they're getting a bit more grown no, up. No, I don't no? think they are at all. A bit crazy. No, because when they are calm, the goals aren't coming. You have to wait for them to feel under pressure or to go behind they have or to, have to very, suffer. Very below par halves of football they too. Have, yeah, exactly. But they they need they seem to need I don't know an, an incentive to just show the quality and become relentless. So it's it's almost I imagine overwhelming for the opposition, no matter how well set up they are or what great run they're on or how much they believe in their own system then they're not really like any other team in that they are a team that have a lot of quality and might well win the title and yet they play like every game's a bit of a cup final. How is that? Is that have you made peace with that now as a fan? Because you were talking at the start of the season about it making you a bit jittery and you know falling behind. Yeah, at no, home. no, no, because it, because now, it happens all now, the time. I'm now are you okay you, with it. Yes, I am it, now. It's fine. I'm we'll fine. Sc- I'm, we'll score I'm four used to by it. the end of the game. I'm used to it. It's like you can get used to someone who who bullies you. I, I'm used to it. I'm used to it. I, I'm absorbing it. It's fine. Hamza, but, it, Hamza but Darwin put- fits into that, you see, and that's that's why he's sort of immune to the normal criticism that a number nine would get. Because I agree with you, Gregor. I don't think he's going to be a 30 goal a season mm. striker but he brings this he some he somehow embodies this version of Klopp's Liverpool the wildness yeah, yeah. there's an interesting little nugget in Hamza's piece that was uh, Liverpool's goal difference in all competitions this season is is plus 49 plus 8 in the first half and plus 41 in the second yeah. that's pretty extraordinary I think you know it shows that <laughs> it's not it's not it's not uh we keep using the word control, you know, there's a period where Arsenal looked like they were very controlled. Man City, it's often a word you use about them. There's still not much control. And that's, I know that sounds daft after they've won 4-0, but yeah. it's true. There's not, it's not like but you know, measured you know, control you know performances. How, you know how Klopp is famous for standing out on the pitch when, when both teams are warming up and watching what the opposition do to warm up and people think that's quite quirky and how come he's still doing it? I think he actually does do a lot of stuff on the hoof and so at half time he's worked out what the opposition are doing what their weaknesses are which areas of the pitch they're not controlling properly where they need more energy and how he needs to because he he did he did shift around his front three it's not rocket science there are only three positions and you can move people around but he doesn't he does it because he's reacting to what he's seen and that's and he's but it's, that's not a one-off. He's done it in almost every single match. At half-time, it's either the pep talk or it's the actual shifting of position. And it has almost always worked that whatever he does at half-time, they, he, they come out Liverpool and they have more of everything. And that's, that is partly because of how Klopp is prepared to be thinking about things as they're unfolding and not not in that sense of I've got a plan and we're sticking to the plan, he's quite happy to rip things up at half-time. I think that's exciting. I was just going to add, as Henry, yeah, Henry wrote in his piece, club substitutes have been involved in 31 goals, 15 goals, 16 assists this season. So that's pretty impactful. Well, speaking of statistics, Gregor, uh, producer Neil, as, a, as the fourth man of the show, from silently from afar, from behind the glass, has just uh, messaged me with a statistic. Nunes, the only player to have 10 goals and 10 assists this season. Combined. 10 and, 10 and 10, first player to both. Mo Salah leads the combined list, 14 goals and 8 assists, but Nunes has got 10 and 10. 
prepared to change your mind? Yeah, look, he's still, as I say, <laughs> I bet a lot of that was, you know, he started the season very well. Very, very well. Um, and it's been a little bit more of a barren spell recently, but he's still he's still contributing to the team. That's yeah. what that's. I'm not disputing that at all. Yeah. Coming back to Jurgen Klopp, Alisson, and you were talking about personality and some of the things that he's doing, he seems to be happy and creative again. And I remembered when I was um, prepping for the show, thinking about something, Gregor, you said about Pep Guardiola a few weeks ago and saying how he talks about being happy with his team. How much do you think it, it seems, it seems an obvious thing to say, but these managers being happy when they've been there a long time and they have so much work to do and so much pressure, that idea that he's quite excited by this group of players that he's got he likes the slightly mad way that they approach games and that they go behind and then they win late on. Do you think that's a big factor in this Liverpool this season? Just trying to think of games like the Arsenal FA Cup game when they had a probably slightly inferior team under pressure still come through. Do you think a happy, slightly fun, jovial Klopp is key to Liverpool's success? No, well, it's absolutely key, isn't it? Because you, it's the glass half full, half empty type of approach, isn't it? You, you could look at Liverpool and decide, oh, woe is me, you know, Trent Alexander-Arnold, one of the most exciting players, oh, he's injured, you know, Mo Salah at the Africa Cup of Nations, oh, this is just, this is just all coming at the wrong time. Or you can be as Klopp is and see it as an opportunity for a wealth of talent that is coming through to get properly involved. And his, the way he's integrated young players is, has been you know, textbook perfect. So you give someone like Conor Bradley time in non-Premier League games, in the Cup games, allow him to understand that he's got what it takes and he's he's not going to freeze, he can integrate properly. So then you say, go on, have your Premier League debut. It's, you know, and it, and, and and he played incredibly well And for someone with so little experience. And Klopp genuinely seems to enjoy taking players from the academy and pushing them through rather than seeing it as oh well I'm having to do that I haven't got quite as much resources as 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 someone like City it's not fair he's he 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 does seem to relish that and that will have a impact going through it means that the players who are there who might have been worried that that City were going to catch them up because they were a bit weakened will think well if Klopp thinks that these new players are fantastic then they are fantastic and they help the new players and they form partnerships quicker than they might otherwise have done so the, the classic example is Harvey Elliott and Mo Salah you wouldn't have said I don't know how many years ago oh I bet those two get on really well and on the pitch you see wonderful little patterns and interchanges between them but when they play on the pitch together you know Mo, Mo Salah is is you know he's he's a a sort of, I don't know he's he has his targets he wants to to reach he, he wants to have assists and goals and he's quite selfish in that sense but he you know he really wants Harvey Elliott to shine and he loves the way that Harvey Elliott can dovetail with him and so you see you see that the established stars always at Liverpool very keen to form relationships with up-and-coming players and that's the only way because there are so many good academies in the Premier League and none of them quite do it but Liverpool have a tradition it started with Steve Highway at Liverpool who had uh, was you know really forward thinking with how he brought players through making sure you you squeeze from the local pool of talent and make sure you you're the club that gets them 
And so many academies aren't really run that way, where they actually have a proper proper link with the first team. They're more like money-making operations. But at Liverpool, they have this thing where the kids there really believe they will get a chance. And every time one does, that must <gasps> a thousandfold make every single kid at the academy think it can happen. And then it feeds on itself and it feeds on itself. So now, when you have something like, oh no, Mo Salah's going to have to go away for international duty, it doesn't really fill you with panic because you know there are there are players coming through who can who can help can help the system and they're they're all working to the same system and the players at the academy will know what the sort of thing that Klopp wants because he's been there long enough for it to feel like a Klopp organization. So um and that and that to, comes back to your original question, Tom, which is that all comes from the force of personality of the manager and the energy he exudes. So that if there are problems He's 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 delighted to have to have to solve them. He wants to do that. He loves it. Gregor Bournemouth is this the classic cliched reality check for them after a good run over the Christmas period? Yeah, but there's still a lot to or will just, is just this the, will this just happen to this this, this team at times? Yeah, is, I mean I think it's the reality of of the level they are at, you know, but I still I still think there's a lot to be positive about, you know, the the game against Spurs they lost, they they, they were pretty valiant in there as well. Um and it, I think Iriola uh, kind of said as much afterwards. He said that like Liverpool, they were they were right in the game, and Liverpool kind of stepped up another level after the break. And some, really, there's not much you can do about that. Um, but Bournemouth are, you know, I think Bournemouth's improvement has been been rem- pretty remarkable actually. And uh, as they did in this game, there's still there's still a really tough proposition for any team to face in the Premier League. Alison, Tom. Feeling more confident or less confident as the season progresses about your title chances? I thought you were going to say more confident about Bournemouth. I'm, I'm sure Bournemouth will survive. I just want to just want to just finish on the title because it, because that was the start with Henry Winters' um, piece, kind of t- going down the route that a lot of us are thinking this uh, Premier League season is heading down, it, coming more towards a two-team race for the title rather than this big, exciting four-five team scramble that we people like me were envisaging in November. Are you feeling more confident or less? I think if Liverpool can beat City at Anfield, they've won the title. <laughs> what a claim. What a claim. Gregor, agree? We've got Arsenal and Chelsea before that. Yeah. Just at the turn of the month. Chelsea's uh, no problem. Come on. Really. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think, you know, I think they would be in a pretty strong position then, absolutely. It's... I think, I think I've said it before, I think Liverpool arguably have the, the deepest and most sort of variable squad as well you know they have this, the most the kind of number of options but whether they are the best team in the league or not is is the debatable thing still mm. and personally I think City might still come out on top yeah 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 we know <laughs> you think City might win shocking good opinion anyway let's move on to some other opinions uh, because I'm sure we might fall out about them uh, what do you think Tom what so do you I promised think? opinion I I've have, not actually yeah. heard one yet I think, I think Villa are going to win the title oh, okay, okay. <laughs> stay to asking the questions <laughs> to Sheffield United then and let's start with some other decisions and see if we can fall out about them because before we get onto any of the football or the goals or whatever it means VAR is back um I mean, this was an absolutely bonkers game, wasn't it? Uh, and kind of slightly befitting of what we might have expected from Chris Wilder when he returned to Sheffield United, because it was blood and the thunder and uh, Bramall Lane well behind them and things like that. Didn't quite get the win that perhaps they needed. Let's go through the decisions. Rian Brewster's red card. Anyone think it wasn't a red card? 
I don't think it was a red card, Alison. There you go. There's an opinion. <laughs> How you like me now? <laughs> I think I it was a little harsh. It, I think it was one of many orange cards. Unfortunately, we do not have orange cards. Yes. So you have to let the referee on the pitch decide whether he feels it was dangerous or not. And I think then in the orange card category, once you've given the yellow, I think you stick with the yellow. I don't think you then upgrade. If you, if you then look at it and go... So I'm on the fence about this one. Surely you stick with your original decision. That's you, in, in, exactly in, in, that in real should be, time. That was supposed to be the spirit of VAR, but they've introduced this: go and look at the screen, and someone in your ear saying, "Ooh, ooh, that's bad." Yeah, and then slowing it down, and yeah. then freeze framing it, and going, yeah. "Oh, the ball, the studs are high." Gregor, yeah, look, I, I don't think Liam Brewster can have too much to be com- to, to complain about. To be honest, like I, I agree fundamentally, but. The way the way that the game is now, it was it was at full speed. You know, he didn't even kind of it wasn't even one of them where the player's gonna I think it was Emerson's was, was gonna play a pass and he kinda caught his stud. He went right through his legs and almost his sort of standing legs as well. So I think it gave it, there was always a possibility it was gonna get sent off. Can I ask you a question about red cards that just popped into my head, which just shows what the kind of free form kind of presenter <laughs> I am. I was I was at a Lincoln <coughs> game at the weekend and there was a kind of bad challenge fifty fifty tackle. And our players, I'm so convinced, we are just far too nice. We're nice people, and it really winds me up. Because we didn't, like, fly into the referee going crazy. We did a little bit, but not quite as much as other teams have done against us. And obviously, in this incident, there was a bit of that. People fly in. When you were a player, was that discussed, or is it just, like, unspoken that, that you like, if we charge in here and, like, start pushing people and make out like it's an assault, that might rev things up to be a red card? Because it does make a difference, doesn't it? There's the the classic thing that commentators always say, oh, he's done him a favour there. But if you get fouled and then you stand straight back up yeah, again, yeah, 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 yeah. then you've probably helped yeah. your opponent out by making it not look bad. I would say that there's two things. There's One or two managers I played for would say, get onto the ref. So that there'd be a fundamental thing, they, a belief that they think you can influence the referee if you're always in his ear. And I think there's probably some truth in that. Otherwise, why would everyone do it? Jurgen Klopp's probably the biggest example. Uh, the other thing is then it just comes down to the personality of the players in the team. I think if 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 there's someone, if you have pl- like a group of players in your team who are kind of a, prone to doing that, basically, mm. and maybe your team just doesn't have those characters in it. That doesn't make them weak or like no, too no, nice or anything. But it's just lovely lads. I, I'd have them round for tea, no problem. <laughs> yeah, but you know, some people thought there was a value in it and had the energy to do it as well. Mm. I, prefer to kind of just have focus on the game like and yeah. if there was something really really wildy yeah but I, fundamentally I, I always kind of try to focus on the game yeah because I mean there, there is a difference obviously and I'd probably say there probably were challenges that you saw that you did want to be like have a defending feeling for your teammate because you were like that is a shocker how have you done that to my teammate Yeah, but I think this one is one where Really, a lot of players make that kind of a t- tackle, you know, the orange card. And so it is I that revving I running up. at speed. I think, I, I, I'm not surprised some of his teammates were pretty angry about it. And Emerson was rolling around in some discomfort. So I, I, don't, I, I don't have any sympathy for him with this. I, I agree. Like, if he hadn't been sent off, I wouldn't have a problem with it. Yeah. But I don't have a problem with him being sent off for that either. That's a slight tangent, but connected. Mm. Love tangents. <laughs> I do feel if a player rolls more than once... <laughs> That should be a yellow card. <laughs> Greg ever rolled more than once after being tackled? You can't do that in the football league, can no, you? No, probably, probably not. Couple but we, I can't. I honest, it's one of the things. Like I have played football properly in leagues and cup games and stuff. I have played competitive football with men and with women, so I have a tiny understanding of 
of how it feels to be on the pitch when it matters. But the one thing I think I don't, I can't get my head around is what makes somebody, if you're hurt, if you've been kicked, your Achilles has been hurt or you've had a kick on the knee, how in any way the normal human response is to roll and then roll and then roll and then roll. It's not the normal human response. Exactly. So you should be booked for it. Yeah. You should book for it. Because A, you're going to, if you are hurt, you're oh, going to exacerbate your injury. There's too many things that we're booking people for. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but B, B, you are deli- you're, you're clearly by rolling. Your only motivation must be to alert the referee to the fact that you've been fouled. And it's really serious, referee. It's really serious. I think you should be sent off. I'm going to roll again. It's... It's 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 so obvious that we have to stop it. It's a very very strange thing. I mean, it brings to mind, and we are talking of tangents. I'm heading off into tennis here because the thing, <laughs> that just very quickly, you know, the thing when they always win at Wimbledon and they fall on the floor on their back. Yeah, like that's got to be the least obvious reaction to that moment ever, isn't it? <laughs> you're loading, you're going tops off, you're running around, the, you're jumping up, you're going absolutely crazy, and they all do that daft like they've just passed out and they fall on their back because they saw someone do it. And to be they... fair, if you're playing tennis for four hours or whatever, it may just be pure exhaustion. Yeah, maybe, maybe I'm being harsh. Anyway, back to the football, the mystery penalty. Where's the foul? Who saw it? What on earth is going on? Greg has got his games gone, head shake, face on. I mean, it's crazy, isn't it? It's crazy. Well, in my initial thought was, you're talking about Areola, aren't you? Um, mm. My first thought was, ah, at last, a referee who isn't just going to protect the goalkeeper, come what may. Because goalkeepers foul too. So, yeah, I was really happy, not happy, but uh, pleasantly surprised that a referee had the bottle to say, no, I'm, I can see, although he might have been trying to come for the ball, what he's done is taken the player out. Although... A little forensic examination of the footage makes you think, I don't know that he definitely saw what he thought he saw. And maybe that should have been properly analysed. Because if, if you, I, none of us really like VAR, but if you're going to say VAR has a role, it's for things like that that are a bit, where there are angles and limbs and who's looking at the ball, who isn't looking at the ball, who shoved someone into the path of the goalkeeper. It was a bit of a mess and it needs somebody to look at photo images and work out what the initial foul was. I think, the, and I think the conclusion is there wasn't one. Hmm. I think Peter Walton said that he summed it up in his yeah. little piece in the paper today. Like some people are, you know, saying that there was actually a foul on Ariola because he, I think, had a burst lip, and yeah. McBurney was kind of back. But, but McBurney was pushed as well. It was like it was just a coming together that happens. Yeah. He was he was slightly, re- you know, slightly reckless in the in the fact that he went for that ball in that period in the game. Uh, and and didn't get it, you know. It's like, but he didn't. It was not a foul. There was no foul there. No. And I don't know how someone can watch that back and and not come to that conclusion. But no. this is where we are. Crazy, strange one. And then at the other end, Jared Bowen, rugby tackled to the ground. Uh, Defenders Union. Here we go. I don't know. I have I have a little bit of sympathy for like for for uh, Anel. I won't try and say his name. Ahmed Hodzic. Yeah. Um, he, in fact, he he had a little spiky kind of tweet afterwards where he was showing some sort of an, there there was some analysis I think in the TV studio of of it and and pundits were saying this is a you know I don't know how it's a stonewall penalty and he uh, you know although I didn't like his, the start to the tweet he was saying clearly biased but then he went to explain there's another angle where you see that Jared Bowen is pulling me towards the floor and I am looking at the ball and to be fair they did show that a match of the day as well. You know, once by the time the camera and the kind of live action comes round, all you see is <laughs> uh, Ahmed Hodzic 
with his arms round Bo- uh, Bowen, not even looking at the ball and falling to the ground. Mm. But before that, he Bowen had his arm round both shoulders, was pulling to the ground, and Ahmed Hodzic was looking at the ball. Mm. So it looked bad. I get it, but I do think that was a bit of kind of six and a half a dozen. Do you get taught that? As a defender, because surely that's the mo- that's the art of good defending, isn't it? To be able to be in that scenario where, as you say, six of one, and get the decision your way, because it happens all the time. You know, as I said, I, and I go back to the game I was at in League One on Saturday. Our, Lincoln's young striker, we were loving him because he was getting really tight to the centre back, but basically fouling him. He was pulling his shirt all the time, but he kept getting the free kicks. I mean, and that is there's an art to that, isn't there? To, there is, to but- make the referee think that you're being fouled when actually it is six or one. There is, but I mean, again, I wouldn't have been too surprised if referee had pointed to the spot if they'd just caught the the aftermath, you know, the kind of tail end of that incident. I don't think his position was good either, because you shouldn't, you should still never be in the position where you're, you're not, your your body shape is actually facing away from the the ball, the ball where the ball is being crossed in. But he was being pulled by Jared Bone initially, and then he fell to the ground. So I think it was the right decision. Alison, penalty, no penalty. No, I agree completely. Um, and I actually felt it wasn't a penalty upon first viewing. So Okay. There we go. Honestly, I thought we'd fall out way more than that. <laughs> I thought it was a penalty. There you go. But I'll just, just I'll stick that in there. Um, I would just say as well, the thinking about VAR, when you go to a game that doesn't have it, as I say, there was this controversial tackle um, and also we had um, a penalty appeal, which was this young striker again. Referee gave him a yellow card for diving. Crowd's going crazy. And at no point did I think, God, I wish we had VAR. At and- no point. And when the when a goal goes in, yeah, I was at Southampton game last weekend, and it was there's no there's no like momentary kind of pause or hesitation just to see whether it's going to be an actual goal or not. It's it's brilliant. Yeah, we'll save this for when we're in the old people's home, going, oh, it was better in our day, because I'm sure it will get down to the football league eventually. At Sheffield United, uh, I don't want to dwell. We talk about West Ham and David Moyes a lot. They're still sixth of six seasons going okay, but Sheffield United, Chris Wilder, tenth point of the season from 21 games. As much as we might be looking at Nottingham Forest and Everton and their situations off the pitch and potential further points deductions, these are the games they kind of need to start winning, don't they? Really? Yeah, I mean, if you look at the kind of the bigger picture, he's he has had an effect, and they've been, you know, even in games they've lost, you know, the Villa game as well. For for instance, they could have easily won. They nearly did a job on Villa, um, Liverpool. At a, you know, they didn't score the second goal until like late on in the game. So they, they have been writing games and he's he has had an effect. I was also really excited to see Ben Brera and Diaz and he, he looked like he had an impact as well. He's an all action player. He kind of um I remember I did a piece about Forest Academy years ago when they beat Arsenal. Do you remember they beat Arsenal in the cup yeah. a long time ago? And a friend of mine, Jack Lester, who's now on the coaching staff there, picked out two players that were gonna kind of from the academy and it was Brenton Diaz and Ryan Yates and both now are kind of forces of nature in the Premier League that's what that's what they are and he is that I think he will be impactful and Willis Sula as well I have to say he's a kind of academy player who Liverpool among other teams are looking at and he's he's very highly rated obviously he's young and he's you know he's raw and it's hard to rely on him in, in this situation but I think we might see more of him as he sort of gets to grips with playing in the Premier League and McAtee's been outstanding as well so I think actually going forward Sheffield United will be okay I just don't think they're going to keep out enough goals mm. like I think 
I think they need to strengthen in defence before the end of this month if they've got going to have any chance. And I do. I, I know everyone's writing them off. I still have a a flickering feeling that they might have a chance. Well, what What's impressive about them is that they they're not supposed to have a chance. Mm. You know, no one's escaped from this position before, and yet they don't play like that. They haven't got a fatalism about them. No. If you if you had no idea what the table said and you just tuned in to watch that game, you you would have thought they're safe. That this is a mid-table team enjoying life in the Premier League. You know, the fans weren't jittery. The players they lack quality when it mattered, but you could not fault their fearlessness and endeavor and energy and there was a quite strong sense of camaraderie given all the changes. You I I mean, West Ham were off the boil a bit, but they were they were in a position to take advantage of that, but they didn't enough. But, well, you know, that's what happens when you're a team with such small resources. But, you know, they, there wasn't that that sense of it's over. And, if you, and that's quite a miracle, I think, from a managerial point of view. If you can instil that into your players when you are the position you're in in the league, that's, that's impressive. Do you think looking at obviously, and we talked on Thursday, Gregor, about the potential for this points to, future points deductions to not come in until late in the season? But if you are the bottom three, um, and Alison, you talk about the table: Sheffield United bottom with ten points, Burnley nineteenth with twelve, Luton eighteenth with sixteen, then Everton seventeen points in seventeenth, and Forest sixteenth with twenty points. If you're looking at it and there's those three teams below and looking above, are there two from three that you think could capitalise on a potential points deduction? Which which are the two? It's funny. I would, I, I would say, I would have more faith in Sheffield United collecting more points than Burnley actually between now and the end of the season. And Luton are, Luton are going to be right in it until the end. I think. Mm. Look, if more than one of them are to stay up, then you, undoubtedly they're going to need a favour by the Premier League, mm. uh, and it still might not be enough. Do we think the two teams above them? Because I think Forest are looking like a team that could probably t- take a points deduction and still survive. I don't know whether Everton could take two points deductions. I love Sean Dyche, but I don't know if he's that good. No. Yeah, no, I agree. I think Forrest could could take a points deduction and probably just about survive. If Everton get another one, then it'd be a miracle. Alison, any of those bottom three giving you hope that with the help of a Premier League and a points deduction, they could survive? Uh, I, I, well, won't, won't be Burnley. You hate Vincent Company, don't you? Think, I you? do hate Vincent Company. <laughs> but I, I do. I, do I, th- I think he lacks the necessary pragmatism but that that sense of fatalism i see on occasion with burnley they 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 are they are occasionally attractive to watch and so on but uh, there are passages of of games at burnley where you feel that they don't believe the players don't believe so Whereas i feel like sheffield united although they shouldn't do look like yeah the reality with sheffield united is still actually the the team that they have now aren't going to stay up but I think, and also kind of knowing Chris Wilder, he will, he will do his, everything in his power to get to strengthen. And like I think they could do a, a goalkeeper too. Mm. He'd been linked with Schmeichel. They, I think, I think, I think they need to strengthen at the back if they're going to have any chance, because it's just that kind of it is the the cutting edge in both boxes that's that's doing for them. Mm. Um, that's often the case with teams that are relegated. But Sheffield United do have the kind of the spirit and the sort mm. of energy still that you, to suggest that they might be able to do something. 
Well, if you've got views on how that relegation battle might pan out, or maybe you just want to tell me how stupid I am for thinking Leanne yeah, Brewster <laughs> shouldn't have been sent off, then get in touch with me, tom.clark at thetime.co.uk. Uh, stick with us. We're going to be talking about Arsenal and Ivan Tony next. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Welcome back to the Game Football Podcast from The Times. I'm Tom Clark, and today I'm joined by Alison Rudd and Gregor Robertson. We move to the Emirates. Arsenal back in the goals after two games without any at the Emirates. Um, set pieces seem to be doing the trick for Mikel Arteta. Um, in the piece that we've got in The Times today, we've got some lovely graphics talking about how Arsenal have scored more set-piece goals than anyone this season, and only three teams have conceded fewer. Arsenal out in front on 13, Everton next with 11, then Man City at Tottenham and Luton all on nine. Gregor, is this clever coaching, looking at a way that you can kind of, at all areas of the pitch, the best teams do it, don't they? Last season, Arsenal were free-flowing, attacking, exciting football, coming from both flanks, overlapping fullbacks. Now they're making the sure they're doing it the Sean Dyche way. <laughs> That's very clever, yeah. I mean, James, James Gearbrand outlined it in his piece today that, you know, they've, uh, they're basically an attack and play from open play as, a, as kind of a mid-table team. In terms of the quality of of chances that they're they're creating, um, and set pieces are a ma- ma- major reason why that's not had a debilitating effect on their uh, on their season. So, um, yeah, Nick- Nicholas Yover has been his his impact has been pretty profound, really, since it was the same as in his first season at the club as well. Um, they've been consistently at the top of that list. And the 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 first one in particular was really really interesting to watch the way that Trossard kind of made a, an arcing run to back into uh, 
Anderson, wasn't it? I think mm. just to kind of just to hold him in that spot a little bit to allow uh, Gabriel to to attack it. Um, I I find these fascinating. I really do because it's not really something that that you know we we worked in set pieces when when I was a player, but never to this degree into with this de- this level of detail. Almost it's, like a dance routine, isn't it? It's quite a kind of modern thing. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know. The association with Brentford and 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 uh, Michelin as well, I think, mm. they were the kind of first to do it. Um, and now a lot of teams have set piece coaches, and it's recognised as a very valuable, you know, a hugely important part of uh, and yet part though, of the team's preparations. You, it's I think Arsenal are the club that make it the most obvious. Everyone knows who Yeova is, and that when there's a set piece, with either defending or attacking. Arteta disappears from the technical area and he overtakes over which I mean um, James Gearbrandt does make an NFL a- analogy mm-hmm. but that makes it a really obvious one actually to me is that you you've, you almost have a different coach in charge just for those moments of the game it's it's like those um, those clocks where people go ping ping and you see the lady and then ping ping and then you see the gentleman <laughs> and it's like that it's 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 yeah, Villa do that as well with uh, Austin Austin McPhee. I think often Emery's kind of takes a, a backward step and he steps out to the front of the. You know, it's, it's someone taking responsibility for all the work they've done. And th- as I say, this, you know, a lot of these. I, I remember doing a piece about this actually about eighteen months ago, and and I spoke to the person who who was the best at this in my my time was Alan Nil, who who who's now is Chris Wilder's assistant, and he had a real interest in the NFL and he also just watched obscure leagues around the world and stuff and picked up ideas and a big thing that is often about is getting first contact it's this is what's slightly different these are a lot of them are about blocking now with Arsenal and Yeover a lot of the time in with these routines it's about making sure you get the first contact so it's kind of manipulating a way of getting someone to the front post the opposite because of the, keeps, oh, you can't beat the first man, which no, because, is what every no, fan because says. It, because the first, if you win the first contact, it creates chaos. Yeah. That's the that's the kind of the theory. Whereas, you know, if you see a, a corner come in, you can watch it all the way. If you get the first contact on it, then no one really knows what the next thing is. And as long as you, if you've got people attacking an area, then that's what that's the kind of theory behind it. But what, what Yeover does, seems to do very well, and there's been other examples as well, is it tries to get, it forms kind of really clever ways of, of, of getting blocks. Mm. And, and are they fouls? Well, that's, this is the thing. It's, there's been a bit of this this weekend about mm. you know we will come to Tony afterwards. It's about how you bend the rules to mm. the to the without breaking them. Well, and the and the Bowen thing. That's why I was saying to you the six or one thing. And that is you talk about these corners and you see it whether you're watching the Premier League or League One or anything. There's technically probably fouls happening in the box all over the place. Yeah. people hold and, literally hold on to it. And the second one where Henderson's kind of pinned. Well, there's the player standing in front of the goalkeeper. Exactly. His job it is exactly. to do that. And then the the other player comes and stands behind him and shoves him in the back. There's probably about three counter fouls going back and yeah. forth there. But if you do it subtly enough, yeah. then you get away with it. And look, that's part of the game. It's always been part of the game. Yeah. But so you would rather that just carries on. Just absolutely. Just, I mean, yeah. you, you, there are already too many things that are yeah. judged are judged to be fouls. So so, you, so even when you were playing, then if you got pinned. You wouldn't have been going ref, ref. You'd have oh, been going. Oh, I got done. <laughs> of course, it would. But I, I would have thought that <laughs> at the same time. You'd have known actually, real, yeah. in reality, bollocks. I got done there. I mean, there, there was very simple ways of doing that when when I played. If someone was making a forward run, another defender would run kind of the opposite direction and kind of 
almost like fake and pretend to bump into you accidentally. Oh my god, I didn't see you. Yeah, <laughs> but these, now these are re- these are really kind of you know intricate ideas. Yeah. The way that Trossard spun and made a really like a, a run that no one no one could have followed and or done anything about. In fact, uh, I, I think it's fascinating. But are we saying? Come on, come on. Are we saying they work so hard on the choreography yeah. of set pieces? that they're too tired to play well in open play. I mean, I don't see why one has no, to be... at the day. But the the, but the the narrative, Tom, is Arsenal from open play are a mid-table team, but it doesn't matter because they're dominating the set-piece charts. Why does one... Why why is it an either-or? I just love a good surely, stat. Surely, but surely a team that's going to win the title... I don't think... They, they have to do both bits no, properly. Absolutely. Of course. Absolutely. I don't think they think it's an either-or either. But what it does... Is when you're playing against a team who, you know, are for large spells of the game going to be in a low block, it gets you an early goal or two, and then they have to come out. And you saw that they exploited the space afterwards. Well, I'm under pressure to provide some opinions, so instead I'm just going to nick James Gearbrands with a payoff to his piece, Alison. Of course, Arsenal's proficiency in the supplementary aspect does not absolve them of the need to sharpen up their creation and finishing in conventional open play scenarios. They will need to get better at facing low blocks. And I agree with him. I think if they're going to progress, which was going to be my next question, that they're still in the title race points-wise. But even against teams like Palace, who have these low blocks, they still don't look yet like they've found a solution to that. And going forward, presumably then the counterpunch from opposition, Gregor, would be that you think about Arsenal, well, they're just going to play for set pieces. So don't give, <laughs> don't give them set pieces, get better at marking. Does that, is that not how it works constantly? Because that's where Arsenal have been stopped this season, isn't it? With the low blocks and working out that you know it comes from Saka and Martinelli out on the flanks. If you can stop them, I think you said a few weeks ago that you know it's a bit, a bit basic and it's obviously more nuanced than that. But essentially, if you can kind of stop them and stop that threat out wide and they overlaps... You're kind of you're in a good position. That's been that's been one you know a, a kind of feature of of Arsenal's play this season, absolutely, and the fact that if Odegaard is, has, isn't allowed any space sort of on front of the opposition's back four as well, there's not really much creativity. Hmm. Um, you saw you know you saw you saw Zinchenko step in and play an absolutely outstanding ball kind of defence split and pass. It was early in the first half, but there's really, I don't know, they they are lacking something, a bit of craft, I think, in, in, in the middle of the pitch. Are they lacking something that we talked about maybe with Liverpool, that just a slight bit of hectic madness that you, you know, you've just said about um, getting the first contact on a set piece because it then creates madness for the opposition? Are they lacking a bit of that this season in that they're a bit more, you know, at the start of the season we were praising them 2-0 to the Arsenal, 1-0 to the Arsenal, and they'd maybe lost a bit of that free-flowing madness that they had last season, which was why we loved them so much. And God, that's wonderful. They're a breath of fresh air. We all hope they win the title instead of City, everyone's favourite team. Have they lost a bit of that this season? Well, it's the overcorrection problem, isn't it? That you, you perceive the reason you didn't win the title or finish where you wanted to finish because of uh, flaws in, in what you had that season. And so if the floor is perceived to be a bit too emotional, not just not grown up enough not mentally ready to accept the challenge of being winners, then you you overcorrect and you become uh, highly coached and lacking uh, that, that sort of flair and ability to think on the hoof. And so they have become more... They do look more grown-up, Arsenal, but they also look predictable 
and lacking verve. And we, that's quite easy to play against often, uh, isn't it? Are we, are we writing them off then? I know you were joking before about me on the giving opinions on the title race. I don't think they're out of the title race. I think, you know, I think it might be a stretch for Villa, but I think it is still a three-team title race at the very least. Are we saying that Arsenal third is probably where they're going to be? I think so. Be, be, sim, maybe, be, I mean, because of the overcorrection. Mm. Maybe it needs another, yet another season where they realise they should blend this season and the season before. I'd, yeah, I would be weary to write them off just yet. I think, I, like I could see, I could see them beating Liverpool. Hmm. You know, it wouldn't that wouldn't be a major surprise? I wouldn't. I could see them beating the best teams. You know, and it's whether they can do it against the low blocks is probably the bigger challenge, <laughs> the yeah. bigger sort of question mark just now. Um, then the fact that they've not hit they've not hit anything like the stride yet and they're still they're still in the conversation. So that's the point that in for itself me. is a kind of is something that I, I would I would take as a positive as an Arsenal fan. Is that I wonder if they've got a kick you know, a final yeah. kick coming. In the in the you know, you said about Odegaard hasn't been at his best this season. He you know, you'd assume a player of his ability will come, will step up at some point. you can't you can't think they'll go the whole season without working out how to beat the low blocks. You know, it's still only January. I just think they might come again. They might have a little run. Whereas last season, they they ran and ran and ran and then ran out of steam. We're still waiting for them to really, really excel this season. And the other important point to stress is that they have the best defence in the league. It's always going to give them a chance, particularly if you can pop up with the odd set piece too. Absolutely. Well, I mean, talking about uh, players that are going to be important and hoping to come on to a run for the end of the season Ivan Tony is definitely going to be one of them Gregor you've written the piece that Alison mentioned earlier at the start of the show uh, which is headlined on the Times website Ivan Tony still has that rare confidence I first saw when he was 18 I witnessed the strikers unstinting self-belief when he was my Northampton teammate in 2014 and that is the main reason why I think he'll play for a top club so before we get into Tony's return tell us a bit more about that piece and some of the things Alison was talking about earlier yeah it's, it's funny you know you go, you go to I wrote a preview about this game about Ivan Tony. I went to the game, wrote a kind of scouting report for the Sunday Times, and then it comes to like, what are you going to write about the Monday? Who are these stupid editors who the, all these bloody <laughs> no, requests all the time? But the game, some more but, imagination. But the the game, I've never ever ever seen a game, or a, in fact, there's not a game I can ever remember that was so dominated by one individual. It was, you know, you you went to the game and there was a huge billboard outside the GTEC saying, "He's back, he's back, he's back, he's back." <laughs> uh, there was this crazy uh, like welcome back video before. Did you see it? Yeah. Where the lights dropped, it kind of glowed red. There was the Undertaker WWE style kind of church tolls. <laughs> like, and then uh, Jay-Z's song came in and he was like, allow, allow me to reintroduce myself with like a montage. <laughs> and Sad you think, didn't rap that, but anyway. And you're thinking, <laughs> crikey, like... You know, sound I, I get, disapproving, Gregor. No, I, I, disapproving? At that point, at that point, I was like, "No, he's forgotten his roots, young Ivan." <laughs> that, I remember him when he was at Northampton. I was thinking at that point, this is too much because obviously, look, he he he'd done a clutch of interviews before it. He was absolutely, you know, willing to stand out, stand up and say, "I'm going to hit the ground running. I've been waiting for this. I can't wait to get back." Which in itself is like it kind of. It grabs you a little bit. You think, wow, this guy's got some confidence. And as I say in this piece, you know, it didn't surprise me. It doesn't surprise me because I, I saw him when he was 17, 18, uh, when I played him for like a year. And he was 
like jarringly confident for that age. Mm. There's what a great is, story in there about a failed transfer move. Yeah, he never says a lot about. He it. never he, he he said his goodbyes in November 2014 because Wolves had a half a million pound bid accepted. He went up. He's you know he's since admitted that he got he took pictures with the strip. He you know he did everything. He signed the contract. Did everything basically. And then the medical came back. They found he had uh, scoliosis, which is like a curvature of the spine, and the, it fell through. So he he came back into training the next day, and I remember we were sitting in the gym, and I was like, "What happened, Dave?" And he's he said, uh, "They they only offered me three grand a week." And I was like, "And it didn't surprise because so we, did, we didn't know. About the we didn't know. Yeah, yeah. He, he kept he was telling everyone a little white lie, but he chose to tell a lie about them not offering him enough money. You know that tells you kind of." A, a little bit about how I, he, how really he's kind of, myself. how he feels about himself. Yeah, like he was, he's willing to say they're not valuing me enough. But the reality is, he'd feel the medical. He wanted to keep that to himself, but he, he, which was perfectly understandable. And he just forgot about that as well. You know, when you're 18 and you fail a medical, and you, you, somebody's told you you've got a dodgy back, you, you know, that might cause elicit a few doubts in some people. He earned a move to Newcastle nine months later. Mm. So. There was that. There was also just the fact that, as I've said in the piece as well, we were like in a relegation battle in League Two, and we're two games to go before the end of the season. And he he said he was saying all the time, "I I should be playing. I should be playing." And Chris Wilder finally gave him a start, and he he scored four goals in the last two games, kept us up almost single-handedly. And it's like, right, okay, this guy's. You know, he backs it up as well. So I, I did know about that, but then, but now, and again, I, as we've said before, I interviewed him again after, um, just after he got moved to, to Brentford. So he'd been playing League One the season before. He'd never even played a Premier League game, and he was telling me, "I think I'm going to play for England. Like I'm going to play the Champions League, want to win titles, all this good stuff." And you're like, "Okay." <laughs> And he, you know, he, again, he backed up and he stepped up and he stepped up. So, again, all the stuff that's been swirling in the last week or so. And, you know, it, it must have been quite hard. You can talk about the rights and wrongs of what he did, and a lot of people have. But to be under that much scrutiny, to have had, in fact, even before that, to have had over a year of being under investigation by the FA and being the third best striker in the Premier League at that time, all the while, it's pretty remarkable. Mm. And so... I, this piece I wrote today was kind of just underlining that I think he has a, an elite mindset. Mm. Like, and I know that sounds like a bit jargony, and it's you know, I ref, but I referenced. He always talks about visualization too. He always talks about imagining. He, he said on the pitch afterwards, "I man, I manifested this. Yeah. I, 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 you know, I visualized it before I left my house, mm. and I made it happen." That's what he said to this guy's sports camera after yeah. the game. It's like an immense sort of self-belief yeah but that's what the very top athletes do i've mentioned tennis so i'm going to bring cricket in now which is <laughs> opinions from all over the place but i always remember watching an interview with former australia <clears throat> batsman and captain ricky ponting who said in his hotel room the night before he'd stay up for hours like not sh- just shadow batting but like visualizing scoring yeah. runs and where he would do it yeah. and he'd think about the crowd and what the weather would be like yeah. so that when he then went out there he'd go i've done this already and i referenced a few people at the start of the piece too Mohamed salah meditates before every game and he he said that he often scores goals in his mind that become reality on the pitch. So, like, the goals he scores, you know, the little ones where he's weaving in from the right and slotting it in the far corner, he he's dreamt that the night before the game, yeah. and then he makes it reality. Wayne Rooney used to always say, used to ask the kit man, what colour strip are we playing in? So that when he was 
visualising the night before him scoring goals, he would do it in the right coloured strip. Mm. Uh, and Kylian Mbappe was saying that he he always thinks to himself before he steps on any pitch, I am the best player on this pitch, even though sometimes he's been facing a pitch, you know, an opponent who had Messi or mm. Ronaldo in the team. And but he, they do that because sports psychologists tell them to. Mm. This is a this is an yeah, accepted but, thing to do to visualise. Yeah, but doing game. it. And, you know, even trying to practice it and actually doing it is a very different thing. And that's the why I that's why I referenced that story in, that you referenced at the start of the, the podcast, Alison, because you, you, I, I was playing in a... I referenced the story because it's still seared in my memory about how about the kind of power of the mind. Yeah. Is that it was my... I think my first full season in the academy at Nottingham Forest and we won our kind of league. Liverpool won... Uh, their their league in the Premier League Academy system and we met in the semi-final of a playoff and so it was a big game for me and my world at that time and the ball the ball fell I was facing my own goal and I said not short and I played a short back pass and Neil Miller who you know went on to mm. do quite well nipped in round the keeper scored and I just remember after that thinking that was that was because I said said to myself don't do this rather than do this in a positive way mm. I said it in a sort of negative fear of failure way mm. and so I, I find it fascinating because I know it's actually very hard to you can you can easily you know have positive affirmations you can visualize what you want to do but actually turning it into reality is the thing that is what makes you a real success or not and Ivan Tony's doing it mm. he's doing it he said all the things he was going to do and he's doing them and so I think there's more to come and largely, look, he's he's a good player. He's, I'm not saying he's going to reach the heights of the players I'm, I've referenced there. He lacks a yard of pace compared. You know, if he had a yard of pace, I'd say he could go all the way. Like, but he's he's going to score goals. He's proven in the Premier League. I think we now th- we recognise after that one hundred minute appearance. You know, he didn't even have to come off in this game. He's fit and ready, and it's a matter of if not. You know, it's a matter of when. Sorry, not if. He gets a move. Is it also a matter of who he is his manager, though? Because let's have a little for Thomas Frank, who's handled him right from the start brilliantly. So he's got the very best out of him the minute he took him on at Brentford. He, I, Thomas Frank made him his player of the season last season and made a point of saying, not because he handled the, the betting allegations over him, because he was playing while we were all wondering what was going to happen to him, which would you know, make people think, oh, is that a distraction? He, he said it wasn't for that, although that was obviously part of it. It was just that he, he's, you know, he, he made it clear that regardless of all this external stuff, he remains an important part of the team who gives so much energy to my players. So he was always bigging him up for things mm-hmm. other than linked to the how he's coping with the betting scandal. Yeah. And, and Brentford and Frank have handled his comeback perfectly because they're not they're very pragmatic about the fact they're going to make a huge amount of money on him they know that well actually, things what, have changed they were they were fully expecting to let him go for big money in january but they they've had a raft of injuries that have made them fall down the table so they've now created an environment where i think that tony feels comfortable staying with them to make sure that they have a, a decent end to the season with that and that he can show off still and still get a big move in the summer. That, that That's quite a complicated thing to navigate, that I, shift in perception. I absolutely agree. I think, I said it in peace, I think they played an absolute blinder because 
Well, all they've, all, everything they've done is made sure that Tony comes back in the best frame of mind. It means that also the way that they kind of talk down what he's what, what he did and talk up what he is helps retain the value of their biggest asset as well. You know, if he comes back and he came back and hit the ground running immediately, everyone goes okay. Any doubts, any question marks about whether Ivan Tony is going to take a while to get back up to pace? Somebody could now come in and say. There's 80 million. What are you going to do? Mm. And it wouldn't feel like stupid or a risk. Whereas until you saw him back in action, and you saw what kind of frame of mind he was in, and you saw, you know, whether he was rust, you know, ring rusty or whatever, <laughs> I was completely dispelled. Yeah. Like it's interesting thinking about Thomas Frank as well. Um, Molly went to the press conference at the weekend, and I was speaking to her about it before. And some of the things you talked about, Gregor, with going and there was a video and everyone's talking about it. Frank said he's like Eric Cantona before the match. And Eric Cantona, of course, had a big, long spell out for Manchester United and then came back. And I remember being a young lad growing up and there was loads of footage around it and things. And it was the same thing. There were scarves outside, all the United fans had dressed up as Cantona and everything like yeah. that. And you think, Molly's ringing me up and going, he's Cantona? Bloody <laughs> hell, he's not Cantona. But actually, it's all part of it, isn't it? It's all part of that sense of, he might not be Cantona, but he's, 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 our, he's Cantona. our Cantona. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And yeah. there's also, there's not many parallels to this, you know, like... And he's also he was also comparing him, I think, to that kind of to someone who had a supreme confidence too. Mm. So there were kind of little parallels with that. With, with, of course, he's not Cantona, but he is a hugely important. He, he, he also what he did was he lifted lifted all the boats around him. Yeah. Like Neil Mopai. So did looked, they look better? Oh, Neil Mopai looked like a different player. He was. It looked it was clunky at first. You think you know because he Tony thrived with his partnership with, with Mbwemo, who's obviously out for a long time with an ankle injury. And it looked a bit clunky at start. He was kind of, you know, one would drop off. They tried. He, he had a chance to slip in Tony. He played it too far wide. Tony dropped off and tried a little ball in the corner, which nearly came off. Didn't. But then they got. They mm. found their kind of flow together. They worked really well. And Tony Tony often drifted wide and linked up with Roslev, the the right wing back. And Mopai was the guy who was down the middle. So, that you know, they played like two intelligent strikers. And I'd say there's some promise between in that partnership for between now and the end of the season you're right with the you, I think you hinted at it before but is you know gamesmanship should we call it or is it cheating I couldn't care less couldn't care less fine let's move I mean, on it, yeah Alison just final no, word final, from... final word yes final word from me I don't know what you were going to ask but also I mean Brentford are you know they're, they're still relatively new to the Premier League they are a relatively small club with a small budget and yet they've had two of the biggest individual player stories in recent years with Christian Eriksen coming back and now the Ivan Tony coming back completely different. But they've handled both absolutely superbly and got the best out of both individuals in what could have been incredibly difficult circumstances and just gone wrong. I mean, you think what people do talk about how well run they are in an economic sense, but in terms of culture, emotional and knowing intelligence, and that kind absolutely. of stuff. Absolutely. I mean, my, I, I said in, the thing, in my piece, how many managers, other Premier League managers, do you think would have sanctioned a massive billboard and that gaudy video like before kickoff, making it making it so much about? I think most managers would be trying to play it down, be like, "Yeah, it may take a bit of time to get up to speed." No, they were the opposite because they know Ivan Tony's personality and they embraced it. Hmm. They were saying, "He's ready. He's like a kid in the sweet shop. He's he can't wait." <laughs> so let's let's let him free. And also, can we just remind people who might not have watched the game or have watched much much of Brentford with Tony in it? He's not selfish. 
He plays an awful lot of unselfish, yeah. clever balls for his teammates. So he might get the pre-assist or the assist. He's very good at he's not just thinking about, I visualise this, I'm going to score. He's thinking about how to make the team better. He's a great team player. Yeah, he certainly is. And you can read more about Ivan Tony because believe me, there is more about Ivan Tony <laughs> as much as we've talked about him for a long time on this podcast on the Times website. Now, Alison Rudd and Gregor Robson, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you too for listening. We'll be back on Thursday to discuss who's made it to the final of the EFL Cup. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project... There's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.